Welcome back to Passing Judgment. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Dr. Rosenthal is Editor-in-Chief of Kaiser Health News, which she joined in 2016 after 22 years as a correspondent with the New York Times. She is now a contributing opinion writer at the Times. Her book, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back, was a New York Times bestseller and a Washington Post notable book of the year. We are so grateful for your time. Thank you and welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thanks for having me. So, so much to talk about. Let's dive right in. I am very worried about what's ahead for our country and wanted to start with a really broad question. If there's one thing that you could say to the American public, one thing you want people to do starting this moment, what would it be? Uh, Wear a mask, take COVID seriously, and uh, await instructions from Dr. Anthony Fauci, because we will get through this, but it's going to take some discipline and some restraint and some patience in the meantime. And the more we can think about having a good summer next year, the better off we'll be now at kind of delaying that gratification. You know, I heard you say the things that we've been saying for so long, (laughs) wear a mask, socially distance. We know so much more than we knew in March, but things are so much worse. And maybe this is an unfair question, but does it surprise you as much as it surprises me that we still have to tell people wear a mask, that wearing a mask is almost a proxy for your party affiliation? I mean, is this something that you would have predicted as a physician or was this avoidable? Yeah, sure. It was avoidable. I guess, you know, I started being surprised by these things when um, climate change, whether you believed in climate change became a proxy for whether you were on the right or the left. When I was like, well, this is just science, you know, What does this have to do with politics? Um, And now we see the same thing emerging, obviously, with mask wearing and is COVID real or is it a hoax, you know, on and on and on. And the thing that disturbs me is I'm a New Yorker. My mom died of COVID in the spring in New York. Um, My two kids, one of them got it. They lived through it. And so everyone in New York took and takes COVID really seriously, which is why the rate there is still very low. But somehow, like large swaths of the country felt like, oh, yeah, that happens in New York, but it's not going to happen in St. Louis or Sioux Falls or Denver. And guess what? It does and it did. And it's really, really bad. And I think the politicization of COVID prevention is, has been just terrible to watch because it's literally deadly what's been happening now. And we see it still, you know, I read an article yesterday about a couple getting on a plane to Hawaii knowing they tested positive and Hawaii, good for the Hawaii administration, arrested them when they got off the plane because I think, you know, part of what I see happening as someone who practices and cares a lot about public health is, you know, the public health messages are kind of a little wishy-washy. I'm actually writing a column for the the Times about this. Um, They're like, yeah, wear a mask, you know, think of your neighbor, think of your parents. 
And I think we really need to scare people to understand that this is serious business. We need to slap fines on people. We say we have mask mandates, but you know, you're a law professor. Why don't we enforce these things that we say are mandates? We don't. And I think there's got to be a lot more hardball in our approach to COVID control. I'm so sorry that you've been personally affected and have suffered a personal loss and that your mom passed away. And I wish that, as you said, we don't have to, I mean, you pointed something out, which I think is so true, which is that New York takes it seriously because New York suffered through a horrible time. Yeah. And I wish it didn't have to be the case. I mean, I remember in the very beginning of the pandemic, a, a reporter asked me if I was happy with what our Los Angeles mayor was doing. And I said, basically, no, because I don't want him to say it's the right thing to do. I want him to scare the blank out of everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to enforce these laws, you know, there's been a lot of, I, I mean, part of the problem, of course, is that the economics haven't been aligned with the public health message. And there are a lot of small businesses suffering tremendously and going under. And so while we say oh, we care a lot about small business and entrepreneurship in this country, we haven't really directed money to those people to say, another thing I think we should do to say, hey, you know, it, there is really no way to make a bar both safe and profitable during a COVID spike. So let's just pay that bar to shut down. And let's not do this kind of halfway enforcement. If there's a mask mandate, everyone wears a mask or you get fined. You know, I, I think it's really easy for people to not take it seriously because many of our enforcement people, many of our policies seem a little like, yeah, you know, we want you to do this. They're exhort, you know, they exhort people to do the right thing rather than saying, you know, you must do the right thing. We don't say to people um, on the highway, we think you should drive 65 because that's best for other people. We say, you're going to get a ticket if you don't drive 65, right? And we haven't taken that approach towards COVID. No, it's unfortunate that we need to. I mean, it's sad that we have to say, here's the stick. But I think you're exactly right. And the economy actually is something that I did want to talk to you about where I mean, we keep hearing, we have to open up the economy, we have to open up the economy. But from a public health perspective, is this just a false dichotomy to treat these two things, the economy and the pandemic, as if they're at odds? It seems to me that if you appropriately treat the pandemic, if we appropriately understand what it would take to try and get a lower baseline, then that's how you can actually foster economic growth, in addition to what you said, which is more... Um, government assistance. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we've tended, and this is partly because our narrative of COVID was formed very early on in the pandemic. We think of opening and closing as binary, but we understand, as you said, a lot more about the disease now and the pandemic. So there are a whole lot of things you could open safely if you took the proper precautions. And so we don't necessarily, once we get that background rate low, have to just shut down and stay in our cellars. A lot of things can open. I mean, here where I am in D.C., clothing stores are open. Um, restaurants outdoors are open. Gyms are open, although I don't, I'm not very comfortable going to them at the moment. 
Um, there, but there are a lot of things you can open. Hair salons are open. I go there with appropriate safety precautions because we understand a lot about this disease. There are other things that you just can't open safely. And those are the businesses that we should say, okay, we're going to give you money to do the right thing because I don't want my local restaurants to go under this year, our bar on the corner, but they really can't function under COVID restrictions safely. Yeah, I wonder how much of the pain we're suffering is that we are not accustomed to more government involvement in our lives in on on both sides in the sense of the government telling us hey, you're going to go ahead and wear that mask and if you don't wear that mask then blank is going to happen. And we're also not used to the government just saying what, you know, what happened in Europe in so many cases. You're going to be shut down, but here's enough money to subsist. No, I, I think we, we haven't approached this as a unit, which is what the country really has to do. You need everyone on board. You need central direction, which, of course, we haven't had this notion that the Trump administration followed, which was, we're going to hand this off to the states. Well, you can't do that because, you know, people travel between states a lot. And the worst state is going to affect all of us in some way. So I, I think, you know, central direction was lacking from the start. Um, the Biden administration, the incoming administration has indicated that it will take more central direction. But I don't know if they're going to play, you know, my form of hardball, which is, is was really typical of a lot of the European countries where, you know, they said, you know, you you have to quarantine for 14 days. And if we see you breaking that, you're going to get a ticket or we're going to, you know, uh, we're going to close down your restaurant if you don't close it down. And they did really hard shutdowns nationwide for weeks at a time. It doesn't take months of shutdown to get the background rate low. It probably takes, I, I mean, and I'm not an expert on this, but six to eight weeks of of really doing the right thing can get the background rate low. And once the background rate is low, then you can open up a lot of things. Just as, as a little example, I'm talking way too much about my family, but I have a nephew, a 10-year-old nephew in Brussels. Um, he's been in school for most of the year, including in the springtime, um, because you know, Belgium locked down hard and, um, you know, reopened the schools. And if, when, when it surges, they close them for an extra week here and there. But the most important thing that we don't pay attention to is what's the background rate, getting that really low. And then the economy can start kind of getting back to normal. Not everything, but many things. Well, now I'll talk about my family, which is uh, in a neighboring <laughs> place in Holland, and I'm happy for them, but very difficult to see all of their kids immediately back in school. And it was exactly what you said with respect to Belgium. They essentially took it very, very seriously for a short, much shorter period of time. They had more patience, and they have had a spring and summer that is something that we, it's unfathomable thinking back to what happened with us. And I was just reading a headline, I think it was this morning, that um, the U.S. had more deaths in five hours than South Korea has had since the pandemic began. Yeah. Now, 
of course, there are more people who live in the U.S., but that is a startling statistic that I think goes to our lack of patience. And something that you said, which I wanted to talk a little bit more about, that the messaging from the beginning was such a problem. And it was not unified. It was, you know, every governor was saying something different. The president was saying something really different than a lot of the governors and wasn't, there was no national plan ever, which there was in all of these other countries. It was very deliberate in a place like South Korea and South Korean healthcare. I mean, they were working with private industry there, but it was central planning to for the good of the nation and we just didn't see it this way you know and we have this thing about american independence i don't want to be told what to do but you know we got used to not smoking in restaurants and i think we just there're times to, to set aside that value and not even think of the greater good if you don't want to think about that but think about your local bar that you really like and how you'd really like to get back there and be safe there. Yeah. I mean, I increasingly feel like the messaging just has to assume people are selfish and then let's try and find a way to meet you and to say, if you can do this for six to eight weeks, there's so much, there's this huge pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. I always go back (laughs) to my perspective on this is so colored by how, medicine in the U.S. has become a business, right? And so I think we were always, in our country, we always saw, oh, there's going to be a drug or a vaccine that's going to rescue us rather than simple human behavior. And and that was kind of our light at the end of the tunnel, which actually, you know, is closer now. But the tunnel turned out to be way too long because, of course, the first therapeutics that were promoted turned out not to work. Um, you know, we are a country whose healthcare system is designed to sell things and to do things that make money. We are not a, a country whose health system is designed at all for public health. And I think the best example of that was right at the very beginning of the pandemic, where, you know, all these, uh, you know, the, the Trump administration, all these hospitals in New York were overwhelmed. They were like, we don't have, well, and elsewhere too, we don't have enough ventilators. And the Trump administration was like, well, you know, we don't have a great national stockpile. Why don't you have enough ventilators? And the answer is simple. I, I kind of joke, because what hospital that has to think about the bottom line is going to keep 100 ventilators in the right. basement for a pandemic that you hope will never come? And which donor, you know, is going to give a million dollars to buy a bunch of ventilators that are never used. I mean, we are just not set up for public health, and I hope we learn a lesson from this. Let's pick up on that because it's such an important topic. I mean, you said these two sentences I think are so, and I know you've written about this and you're the nation's expert, medicine in the U.S. has become a business, and then you said healthcare is designed to sell things not for public health. Before we get to some solutions, are there other examples, because the ventilator example is so stark. Are there other examples where you can say, if you're set up for public health, this is what you would have done, but instead we did this? Well, I think testing is a good example, right? Um, South Korea went right away to its private test makers and said, 
you know, we need a COVID test, we need it fast, and we'll pay you for it. So they had private incentive in there, but they were the ones distributing it. So they guaranteed that they would buy it. Instead, you know, we have this system where like, oh, what's the problem? Why why can't we test people? Oh, well, there's no CPT code for a COVID test. We don't know how to bill for it. You know, it's it was just this kind of cycles of insanity where everything taking longer, including now vaccine distribution when it comes around, because we have no national public health system. Instead, it's different people selling things to different people and then being distributed by different private sector systems. And it's just not the right way to do public health. (laughs) Sorry. Um, It may not be bad to, you know, there may be things we can do in the healthcare system to make it good for acute care. And it is pretty good for acute care aside from being too expensive in my mind. But for public health, I think it gets a big F or lower. Or lower. Well, this certainly is not going to be the episode that gets our listeners rolling in the streets with laughter, and it was not intended to be. Um, and and for our listeners, the CPT code, I believe, is the American Medical Association's um, billing codes, essentially. And right, so- you can't you can't you can't get paid for things until the AMA generates a CPT code. So, you know, am I going to give a vaccine if I can't bill for it? If if I'm uh, you know, one of these dock in the boxes. Um, no, <laughs> you don't know. No. Um, Medicare set the, the payment rate for the vaccine at, uh, for a COVID test at $100. A lot of them said, oh, that's too low. So we're not going to do COVID testing. That's, you know, no, no profit there. Um, you know, we just think about things through this lens of business or the incentives we use to get people to do the right thing have a lot to do with business and public health is often not a good profit center. So for the uninitiated, how did this happen? I mean, how did it come that medicine in the U.S. is a business? How did we get to this place? Was there a fork in the road? And we just said, and I know that this, you know, it's asking you about decades of your work in one sentence? (laughs) You know, I think, you know, you could trace it back to the beginning of insurance, which was not a bad thing. Insurance is good. But when people have insurance, they don't react to the cost so much. And so what happened, and this is, you know, consultants came into healthcare as they've come into every part of our economy and said, this is how you can make more money. Um, uh, because people aren't going to react because they're not paying for it. And so the price is just, it started this inflationary spiral, which we're at today. And in the end, you know, poor patients, because the insurers are like, we're not going to pay that. So then you get these co-pays and co-insurance and de- de- deductibles. And um, we all end up paying, which is why we quote, we really need uh, some kind of national health reform as well. You know, um, you know, who, who, who a lot of my kids' friends after college, they go work for McKinsey or First Boston um, uh, or Bain and do healthcare consulting. It's a big thing. And I'm not saying um, it's I, I, healthcare hospitals when I trained in the 80s were extremely inefficient places. 
They could have been much better. But um, the focus of a business consultant on efficiency is about return on investment, not making things better for patients. So just as a teeny example, you know, the United States spent $8 billion of taxpayer money on digitizing medical records, electronic medical records, right? Great thing. And that intuitively you think that's wonderful because that should mean I can have a scan done at hospital A. And if I move to Arizona next year, they can look at it there. No, that doesn't happen. If I have a scan done at one hospital system in Washington, D.C., and I want a doctor at another hospital system to see it, I literally have to go get a floppy disk made and carry it across town. So all of this business logic for improving efficiency went to, a lot of it went to better payments for hospitals, not for better care for patients, sadly. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about reforms to our healthcare system. There will be Mm -hmm. a new administration. I don't know how optimistic you are about the changes that could be made, but if you were advising President-elect Biden, and we could take out of the picture for a minute who's going to be in control of the Senate, if we could take out political realities for a minute. And again, for listeners who may have kind of a sense that there's a problem, but may not have had the time or space to think through solutions, are there a few things that you would say, if you could do these three, it would just make such an enormous difference for people in our country? Well, yeah, and, and there are things that have, have had bipartisan support um, in the last administration even, but, you know, um, you can't really, living in D.C. now, I see, put politics aside and Congress aside. But these are things with bipartisan support. I think number one is uh, bringing uh, pharmaceutical prices down. People are really suffering from that. There have been bipartisan bills in Congress to allow for importation or to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Of course, anyone who's watched cable TV has seen that the pharmaceutical industry is um, has a lot of ads now telling you that that will be an end to innovation. And of course, you know we wouldn't have gotten a COVID vaccine if that had happened. And those are socialists in Europe who do that kind of thing. But I think Americans are really suffering. So one way or another, we have to bring down drug prices. That is going to be a battle, but there is bipartisan support. Um, uh, so I think that's number one. I think um, the idea that, that the Biden campaign had proposed as an alternative to uh, the Medicare for all wing of the party of lowering the Medicare age and having a public option are both really interesting ideas if it can get done. The latter more than the former, because what having a public option does is, and a public option for for listeners who don't know, means that anyone who doesn't like the options they have through their employer or their union can say, I just want to join a government plan, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, it's not clear what the public option would be, but it would be something. And basically what that does is it doesn't take away private insurance, but it says to the private insurers, you have to be better than this public option for people to choose you. So it raises the bar for everyone to produce patient-centered, high-quality insurance that 
costless for all of us. So I, I've always thought that was a really interesting idea. It kind of throws down the gauntlet to the insurance industry and says, okay, see if you can do better. Then people will choose you and that's fine. Yeah. I mean, that would be a really a way to try and bring competition into the market in a way that could actually help consumers. I thought you were going to end the sentence somewhat differently when you said a lot of my, you know, the young people that you know are going to work in healthcare reform. And I thought you were going to say a lot of young people I know are taking jobs just for the health insurance. And I'm I'm wondering if you think, will we ever be able to disentangle those two things in our country? Because that seems like it's caused so much problems that you have to be employed in order to have insurance or you're in a a separate category. Sure. And that's really hard, especially for, you know, the people we say we care about, the young entrepreneurs who we say we want to encourage. They often need to take jobs to get health insurance. Now, of course, a public option eliminates that dilemma. Um, The Affordable Care Act tried to eliminate that dilemma by allowing um, basically paying states um, to help them expand Medicaid. Unfortunately, from my point of view, in the end, many states didn't take up that offer, which was a pretty great offer. Um, So we're kind of back to, well, are we going to do this by pushing Medicaid expansion more or by offering a public option? But again, you know, the public option is a nice a nice way to get around that problem too. And, you know, sadly, I have patients who I've spoken to, and they're not even patients, they're just people. Um, someone with uh, type 2 diabetes we wrote about, I mean, type 1 diabetes, who literally moved to Germany because um, her whole life in the U.S. as a young academic was governed by finding a job that gave her insurance, not being an adjunct, you know, being uh, not trying to do creative writing. Um, and that's just sad. We're going to lose a lot of really good talent because of that. Well, again, going back to my family in Holland, I mean, their understanding of how they're going to get their health care and the, the choices they can make in their career are so different from ours. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought that up. And it's, it's something that I feel foolish, but I really haven't even I didn't really even think about that much because it was so ingrained that you just have to make sure you can have a job so you can have healthcare and, um, and dental insurance and that these two things are, you know, go hand in hand. And, um, of course the public option would decouple those. Are you, are you optimistic about policy reforms for the Biden administration? I know you said a lot of these proposals had had bipartisan support. Well, you know, I think the the drug price um, control things had a lot of bipartisan support. Healthcare reform itself, system reform, has not generally. You know, the Republicans uh, under Trump spent uh, uh, President Trump spent a lot of time trying to undo the Affordable Care Act without um, proposing a replacement. So I think that's going to be harder. I think what makes me optimistic is partly because I am an optimist. <laughs> That's just, uh, I, otherwise I've just been banging my head against a wall for nothing all these years. Um, but I think um, ideas that four or five years ago, like a public option, like 
even Medicare for all, which were so in left field, like no way, are, are, have moved much more to the center. And I think that's because health insurance premiums, the co-pays, the deductibles, the drug costs have become intolerable, intolerable for so many Americans. I used to say now, the sad thing is I've been talking about this stuff and watching it for decades now. When I first started as a doctor, our healthcare system didn't work for people who were poor or poorly insured. Now I think it doesn't work very well for almost everyone. You know, maybe if you're in the 1%. I think the difference is now healthcare financial woes go up and down the economic spectrum. Uh, you know, only the 1% um, can perhaps avoid a huge bill that could lead them to bankruptcy or at least financial hardship. So now I think all Americans are ready for something different. Um, the problem is going to be figuring out what that new system looks like. And people often ask me, like, well, is it going to be like Holland or is it going to be like Switzerland or Germany? And we tend in this country to think of everything else as socialized medicine. Um, and all of these countries have very different systems. Some are more government-based. Some have some kind of price setting. Um, and our uh, Germany has lots of insurers. Um, and I think we'll find a solution that feels comfortable for Americans, both in terms of our kind of quirky individualism, um, but also in terms of um, not wanting to feel like your um, appendicitis is going to cause your family financial ruin and mean that your kid can't go to summer camp, which is now what we're seeing all the time. I don't know anyone who hasn't been hit with a sizable medical bill at some point. And you mentioned that you're an optimist and I am at least a self-styled pessimist. So the last question I want to ask you before I end with our favorite three questions that we ask all our guests is, is there anything that can come out of this pandemic where I certainly don't think we should say, I'm not someone who believes, oh, it happened for a reason. I think this is horrible. And I think much of it was avoidable. Maybe not the pandemic itself, but our response to it. But is there something where we can now shift and t take a different tack? Is there a, you know, a right turn or a left turn that you think we can make because we all now have lived through this and now maybe it's time for, you know, whatever it is and there's a new administration. Now maybe we finally see it's time to do this. Is, do you have optimism with respect to that? Well, I yeah, I do, because I think it's told us we need, you know, we've hollowed out our public health system in the last 20 years. And, you know, of course, the answer to everything is I'll throw money at it. But um, I'm not simply in that camp. I'm, But what happened largely after 9-11 is we focused on terrorism and directed our resources there. And that made sense. But in order to do that, we moved money away from many of the, the really kind of, you know, street level public health interventions that we know would have made a huge difference in this pandemic. I mean, the we were doing a story or we are doing a story where the Detroit Public Health Department, which was 700 people um, in the 80s, was five people by 2012. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you can't respond to a pandemic without 
uh, a centralized plan uh, and centralized health agencies that have power and good people on the ground. So I think hopefully we'll learn that lesson because as Dr. Fauci says, there can always be another one. Yes. And I, I loved your recent interview with Dr. Fauci and you talking about, you know, I'll get the vaccine when he'll get the vaccine. I stopped, uh, you know, I stopped quarantining my groceries when he stopped quarantining right. his groceries. And I, I feel exactly the same way when he said, oh, I just washed my hands. Then I just started washing my hands. Right. Um, and so I, I do want to be cognizant of your time. I want to remind listeners your book, which is such an important and phenomenal read, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back, which again was published in 2017, a New York Times bestseller and a Washington Post notable book of the year. Before we let you go, we learned a lot from you. We want to learn a little bit more about you and change to some potentially much lighter questions. Sure. First question which famous person, dead or alive, would you like to invite to a dinner party and why? Ooh, well, this one's kind of easy at the moment, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because she inspired so many of us and I never got to meet her. I did briefly as I was starting law school and I wish in that moment I could say to myself, take this a little bit more seriously. And uh, it was amazing just to be in a room with her. Yeah, I think she was a, she was a role model for young women and, and also for older people who, you know, as one approaches older age, that you can stay relevant. And I think that was a really important lesson for all of us. Well, she became even, I think, so much more of a household name. I mean, she would joke about this when she hit her 80s was really the yeah. time when she... You know, you didn't used to have mugs and bobbleheads and T-shirts made of uh, Supreme Court justices. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, Chief Justice John Roberts has this funny line where they were in a speech together and he was introducing her and he said, I'm so happy I can be here to raise the profile of Justice Ginsburg because I know, you know, few of you are aware of her accomplishments. <laughs> All right. Second question. You're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can pick one meal to take. What is it? Ooh, uh, well, probably Indian food from Rasika here in DC, which does great a chicken tikka masala. <laughs> That's more exotic than I usually eat, but boy, is that good. You can get one superpower for one hour. What is it and why? Make Congress agree on a healthcare system that keeps everyone insured and healthy without bankrupting them. How's that for a totally wonky answer? But my husband and kids are totally sick of me talking about this stuff, but I would be a really happy person if that happened. That is, as the kids would say, a very on-brand answer and a very important <laughs> one. And I appreciate it. And I, I do want to say, again, you wrote a phenomenal book, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Elizabeth, thank you so much. You have been working on these issues tirelessly for years. I'm glad that you're still an optimist. I'm glad that you could spend time with us. And I hope that you now uh, get a little rest in the remainder of your evening. So thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for this conversation. You can find Elizabeth Rosenthal on Twitter at Rosenthal Health. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. We want to thank the listeners so much for continuing to listen, stay with us, and apparently tell your friends about it. Please do rate, review. We love hearing from you. And I love getting questions from you. I think we're going to do an episode where we try and answer some of your questions. And we will see you next time.